welcome to another episode of The Code of Create with me, Cameron Blackwood. Today's guest is Tia Merunen. Tia and I worked together when I was actually doing my final ever assignment as a recruiter uh, for an AI startup called Third Eye Labs. Tia is a UX designer and, just like me, a career changer. Tia joins us today to discuss the ins and outs of how UI and UX work, how you can break into a career in it, and the trials and tribulations of bridging the gap between technical and consumer. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you have any questions for either of us, our contact details are in the show description. Today's episode of The Code of Career is brought to you by the Zero to Mastery Academy. Zero to Mastery hosts a number of great courses, whether you're trying to get your first job in tech or you're a tech lead trying to level up some of your skills. If you're still learning to code, I really recommend their original Zero to Mastery web developer course. If you've already learned and you're working already, I'm currently undertaking a junior to senior one and it's fantastic. They also as well have a new Next.js course, which I'm keen on checking out. It's great value at 23 US dollars a month and you can get 10% off by following my link in the description and using my code FRIENDS10. Anyway, on with the show. Hi, Tia. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm really good. How are you? Um, do you go by Cam or Cameron? Uh, I alternate. Uh, I can't remember what I went by at Third Eye. I always just introduce myself um, sort of differently all the time. My LinkedIn's Cameron. You can call me Cam, uh, whichever really. <laughs> I'm going to go with Cam. Nice to see you, Cam. How are you? Yeah, doing good. Doing good. Uh, enjoying this sort of chilly October weather um, up here in Scotland. Uh, Gotta love it. And uh, yeah, I spent my, spent my day working on some JavaScript, which is always a nice way to spend a day. No meetings at all. Uh, so can't complain. Nice. I've also had a no meeting day. It, they are not bad. They are not bad. There's nothing better for productivity. Sounds, uh, sounds good. So um, the, the thing I like to do to let the audience understand you a little bit better is just to run through some quick fire questions to, uh, to get started. Um, so without further ado, first one is a big one. What was your first ever computer? My first ever computer was a family Amiga in the mid-90s. I'm from Finland. We had a computer since I was about four. Um, so it has been a long time. I don't remember the exact spec, but you could play games with it. And we did fight with my brothers about who gets to, who gets to use it when. Yeah, I think that's always the prevailing memory of a first computer is just fighting with the siblings over who gets to use it. Especially that one family computer that everyone had in the sort of 90s and early 2000s. It was, but I can remember like the floppy disks and the graphics so well. Like all I need to see is a picture of an Amiga and I'm transporting way back <laughs> into 1995. Nice. Did, did you have a, a game that you played a lot on it or uh, like a favorite one? I think I did, but my brother didn't message me back on time before this recording because ah. I tried to ask him what it was called. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, I, I think I had... Um... Euro, it must have been Euro 96, which I would have been one. So I think it was an old copy of the game. Um, and I used to always get Scotland to win on that, which I think is the only time, uh, only time <laughs> they're going to win the Euros. <laughs> uh, the, the majority of our games when I was growing up were always uh, racing related. Oh, um, nice. Finland, motorsports, huge thing. My family was into motorsports. My all time favorite game is still um, Crash, Bandicoot, uh, Crash Bandicoot Racing on. Um, on PlayStation One. Oh, uh, that that was that was really fun. I remember that. Um, exactly. Yeah, I was going to say Finland is, is motor racing, basically, isn't it? Like um, for a country with not that many people, uh, a lot of world champions. <laughs> I've I've stereotyped myself in about thirty seconds now. I'm from Finland. <laughs> motor racing was part of my childhood. 
I had a computer since I was very young and I had a mobile phone from 1998. Yeah, I was going to say, because that kind of leads me to next question about your favourite tech city. I, I was curious if you're going to say Helsinki maybe or London, what, which is your favourite? Ooh, I'm going to say London and the internet. Uh, so as far as like physical cities go, London definitely, but it's also because I only know tech in London. I I left Finland, I left Finland about... 10 years ago so I've kind of missed all tech scene in Finland and um but then so much of my tech world and my tech life and my tech friends and like everything around my my life in tech is actually online so the internet that's a very meta answer but my favorite tech city is the internet I like that that's a good way of looking around the answer no one's come up with that yet and I think you'll be episode number 15 uh so um yeah good answer I I think I agree with that and uh, very much embraces the nature of uh, the tech community, so um, ve- very nice. And uh, wh- when you are uh, when you are working, we'll, we'll go on um, a little bit more in, in, in depth into what you do for work actually uh, later in the podcast. But w- what powers your work? What kind of music do you like? I have two work streams. They are either uh, Chopin, like like classical piano focused, very much like Spotify peaceful piano. That's the thing. Or if I just need to get stuff done it's you know share dolly parton britney spears (laughs) absolutely i think 2019 my first year at third eye where we both used to work and doing my dissertation my most listened to artist was britney spears i like the uh i like the contrast there between uh between the classical and the um and the sort of like 90s 2000s pop ballads absolutely but there's just like oh yeah and another thing is like proper 80s hair ballads like euro pop uh euro dance excellent modern talking if you don't know modern talking please put someone <laughs> louis louis will get that code flowing <laughs> yeah a lot 80s pop was i think there's something about how cheesy it was that makes it really endearing i i, I really like that stuff like um i, I grew up on listening uh my parents would play it all the time, so I grew up on listening to it, and uh, yeah, it, it absolutely slapped. I, I, I like to put on the eighties playlist a lot. <laughs> absolutely, it's such a good energy level as well. It's like when you know that you just need to keep going. Like if I'm reading or if I'm writing like documentation or like really focusing on something, then it's you know Chopin. If I'm designing, if I'm doing screen screens, then it's always Netflix. It's Gilmore Girls, um, or like Gilmore Girls, Downton Abbey, Friends, anything that on the background on actual Netflix. But yeah, if it's music, it's like classical piano or that power pop. Yeah, <laughs> it can be helpful to almost have Netflix on as like an audio book. Um, I, I can't do it when I'm actually programming. I can do it when I'm doing more like admin stuff. But um, I think I, in fact, when I was working as a recruiter at Third Eye, sometimes as uh, sort of background noise, I'll just put on um, uh, Peep Show. Uh, which is my all-time favorite TV show. And it was just, I mean, it's, it's got to the horrendous point where I can literally probably name every episode line by line. <laughs> um, but I, it just makes me laugh so much. It's one of those, uh, it's quite chill because you know what's coming, but it will still kind of entertain you in, in the same way. I say to my colleagues that I have a millennial disease. Um, I have, like, if I get distracted, I pick up my phone. Um, even if it's like a really short distraction and then I lose my flow. So having Netflix on on my phone means that I have something occupying like something's going on in the background instead of music and I'm also like not I'm not tempted to pick up my phone so yeah my colleagues my colleagues know very well that when Netflix is on on my phone they know that I'm in a deep state with my headphones on don't 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 come (laughs) (laughs) Have, have you tried the app forest uh it basically if you don't pick up your phone it gradually grows a tree 
And at the end of sort of each week and month, you get to look at the forest you have. No, but I'm writing that down. Yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty that. good. I was saying on um, what would be last week's episode uh, with, uh, with with Howard, um, who was my old boss um, at, at one of my first uh, dev jobs. Uh, I was saying I've been using that app quite a bit, but the problem is I always forget to actually plant the tree at the start. So I'll just put the phone down, and it works because it means I don't pick up the phone, um, or I'll uh, or I'll pick up the phone and then the tree gets withered and that kind of thing. So it's quite a good motivator, uh, quite a powerful one. And I think as well, if you pay for the premium. Um, there's an option where they'll plant a real tree for each tree you do. Um, but uh, I'm always a bit skeptical of that sort of stuff because uh, I wonder how the premium is like a pound a month. So I wonder how many trees you can plant for that. But anyway. <laughs> I have a family member in forestry. I'm going to be asking about that, but I think that's also quite good. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll check out that. <laughs> what What about when, when you are working? Are you, would you say you're like an early bird or a night owl? Oh, I'm a definite early bird. Hmm. Like I'm, I'm a very smug early bird as well. <laughs> you were often the first in the office at third eye. I do remember that. I, I, I am known to be the first in the office. Now me and my my CEO Tess are usually around the same time. But yeah, I do everything. I, I wake up early, do my exercise, go to the gym, do everything in the morning. I'm usually end up at work by. I usually start work around eight thirty. Um. So yeah, to get my morning done, get going. Currently. It's what is October in England. It's highly annoying that I am cycling to the gym or work with the moon in moonlight. Um, but yeah, I'm still an early bird. <laughs> yeah, that, that that is the that's the only depressing thing about having this kind of climate because here in Scotland as well, it gets uh, in. We have very very long summer nights, but it's uh, even. I guess it's more like Scandinavia where we have very uh, sort of short days. And um, I got in the car this morning to drive to the gym. At, sort of 20 past seven, just pitch black. And it is just so, like, it's, it's quite demotivating to it wake quite up. It's demotivating. But then you get to be a bit smug about, I woke up, I'm doing it. Then you smash all of the most important things done in the morning and all the admin stuff, you've answered all questions, and then you can just focus for the rest of the day. Yeah, it's a very it's a very good point, and I, I I I would say that if I was good at getting up in the morning, I'd be an early bird. But unfortunately, I'm not always the best at getting up. But I am the most productive when I do get up. So it's an awkward juxtaposition. Um, I, I've tried all sorts of things. I put my phone on the other side of the flat. Um, I uh, I use a light alarm. Um, I did this. Uh, I had this phone app where the alarm would go off, and you'd have to answer twenty maths questions uh, to pause it. And I was doing stuff like deleting that app in my sort of sleep. And <laughs> it's really bad. Well, I mean, as humans, we will take, like, at a pinch, we don't take the thing that is the best for us, which is getting up. We're taking that, how do I solve this problem now? Which is, I need to get the alarm off. I'm deleting this app. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was an ex-military guy on there. And he was saying... Um, you have to just shut your eyes and shout five, four, three, two, one, and just jump straight out of bed. And I was like, nobody has the energy to do that in the mornings. I'm sorry. <laughs> have you tried it though? I don't think I would think to try it at six thirty. I don't know. <laughs> See, I could actually, I would try that, except that my partner would not be happy with me. But if I was alone, <laughs> I would absolutely try that. What What works for me is uh, is being grandma. I'm in bed uh, by ten o'clock. I sleep. I sleep a happy seven and a half to eight hours every night. Um, that's how I wake up early. I don't. I do not do anything after ten o'clock. Yeah, I think past the age of sort of twenty two, twenty three, it's just yeah, it's accepting that you, you can't stay up until stupid o'clock if you want to be productive the next day. No, and then a social weekend will absolutely ruin you. 
absolutely. <laughs> I was like, if you if you see friends on Friday or Saturday, you need to sleep Sunday to make sure that you're actually productive on a Monday morning. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I mean, we uh, I don't think I mentioned. Uh, uh, I think I think you kind of talked a bit about what about what you did, but um, you are of course a UX designer now. Um, but the final quick fire question is: When you were a kid, what did you want to do? Oh, that's a really fun one. I could never decide. I was very ambitious about everything. Um, so it changed week on week. Some the most common ones that my mum remembers is I either wanted to be a dancer, an author, or a mortician, or a truck driver, and everything in between. <laughs> I, I rate morticians so highly as a fun. <laughs> I I was about 13. My mum loves the story because I couldn't remember what the word was in Finnish or in any other language. And I, I was just like, Mom, Mom, I want to be the person who makes bodies. <laughs> and my brother was just like, what, a serial killer? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I was, I was fascinated. And I think, I think that's part of how I end up here is I'm fascinated by a lot of things. So like, here's a fun segue to what I do now. I'm a senior UX designer at a startup. And that fits exactly what I like doing, which is I'm easily interested and easily curious about a lot of things. So getting to do a variety of things in different industries and applying the same skill sets in kind of all kinds of industries and fields is, yeah, it's the best. Very nice. Yeah. Um, it, it's, I, I do like the mortician answer, but also as well as stuff like truck driver, that's a lot more um, kind of realistic because uh, my one is like way out there. Um, uh, I think what well, mine would alternate all the time, like every kid, but generally it was some kind of professional athlete or musician. And then most other people, I think we've had footballer about seven times now. Uh, yeah. that, that's usually the answer. Um, but yeah. I definitely had that singer, that actor. Um, the author was a big one for a long time um then when I yeah and I ended up becoming a textile artist because I refused to go to high school or do academic stuff when I was younger so I became a textile artist that that's a good sort of segue into the start of how you ended up getting into tech because that's kind of more of a textile art is one of is is an ancient art really um how, how did you so first off how did you get into that and then what was the road that led to you finally getting into tech in the end so, so yeah, I grew up in Finland, if I haven't mentioned it enough times yet. I, um, and you have two options. You can either go kind of do a vocational thing after you finish your primary education, like your compulsory education, so around 15, 16, or you can go and do your A-levels. And I absolutely know, I was like, I had a high average, but I absolutely did not want to become, go out into academia or to high school. I wanted to do something with my hands. I applied to school. I originally was becoming a seamstress, like an artisan, a highly qualified person that makes clothes. Then um, there were three pathways in the artisan school where I ended up getting into. The pathways were clothes, textile or stone, um, and stone and jewelry. And turns out that if you're in like stones and jewelry, everything is uh, measured in millimeters and half millimeters. If you're in um, clothes, it's millimeters and half centimeters. If you're in textile, you get into centimeters and meters. So <laughs> you don't have to be so precise. I um, so yeah, I became a weaver. I became a weaver. Uh, I can also spin my own own yarn at eighteen. Um, but sadly, sadly, what happened is when I was um, eighteen and I graduated, I became really allergic to wool and dust. Um, which meant that I couldn't actually do what I had just qualified to do. 
uh, but I've been I've been active in kind of student unions and that kind of movement. I was very politically active. I ran for the parliament when I was 19. Um, and through multiple segues, I ended up working in Brussels um, in education policy. Um, so I moved to Brussels in Belgium when I was 20. And I worked in policy and training, kind of training young activists and lobbying for vocational training in the EU for three years. And I kind of at that point, I got to a point I was I was 23, I think. I was 23 and I was kind of peaked at that career because I had no qualifications. I was, I was clear what I was doing, but I had no qualifications. Um, so I wanted to go and study. And I decided that despite everything that I said 10 years earlier, I do actually want to go to university. I, I kind of tossed a lot of coins and a lot of conversations. I applied to do midwifery and media and communications. I didn't get into midwifery, so I went to Goldsmiths in London and started studying interactive media. <laughs> That's a very long segue into how I ended up designing and building websites at uni when I was 24. And God, I need to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't quite know how I did all of those things when I was younger. But in short, after, when I was at uni, I ended up working at, as a technician at Apple. So I worked in an Apple store as a technician while I was studying. And then I ended up working at Depop. I worked in customer support, but I was doing bug tickets and helping people and just getting to that kind of more techie startup world. I was really into, okay, this is actually fun. And especially when I worked at Depop in customer support and getting to see what happens when you have an app. Um, when I was at Depot, we reached 10 million users for the first time ever. And you have 10 million users. What happens in the background? How do you, how are features decided? How does an app work? How do bugs work? How do releases work? So I started to get that kind of technical understanding for the first time. It was great fun. And that led me to, after my, um, after my undergrad, I went to um, UCL and did a master's in human computer in, uh, interaction, HCI. And that's how, when I finished, I wasn't quite sure if I want to go into design or research. I still preferred design, but ever since I've, essentially, ever since I went to Depop, I've only worked at startups. So even though my title is a senior UX designer and I worked in, so Depop, I worked in third eye and AI with you for a while. Um, uh, so an AI based startup in London and now I work at Bayer Fertility, which is hardware medical device and digital um, medical as well. So even though, um, because I've always worked at startups since I kind of was a uni, I get to do all of it. I never picked what I liked the most. So I go for very small teams where I get to do a bit of everything. Mm. It's a good it's a good approach to have, um, to be able to sort of get involved in everything. And I often say to a grad, uh, you know, because I, for, for various reasons, I've had a lot of people sort of ask me what, what they want to do after uni. And, and um, I ask my advice on it because I guess because I've been a recruiter and I've been um, a, uh, an engineer, obviously, and I used to be a graduate recruiter. So that's where the bulk of the questions came from. And my answer is, if you don't have any specific skill set that you want to develop and you're not sure what you want to do, I say get an ops job at a startup if you can. Um, yeah. Or if you're a bit more extroverted, get a sales job at a startup um, because you, you will be able to hit so many different areas, particularly in ops. And then you can easily specialize in what you do. It's like a it's like a it's like a very hardcore graduate scheme. <laughs> Absolutely, like ops, support, sales, 
anything you know implementation kind of getting that or like customer customer delivery all of these kinds of roles where you get to see the business and what happens in quite a wide scale to actually figure out what you then like um if there's one thing that i've figured out is so in my career that i summarized there in a long in a long way is about 12 years of working in all kinds of things and the one thing is that you don't know what you like before you've tried it uh but also what you like and what you want to do evolves all the time um like there's a lot of things that there's a lot of things from my really early jobs like i do a lot of project management i do a lot of like managing complex workflows and figuring out how things get done on time and what needs to happen when um a lot of that is everything that I learned when I was working at a, in an NGO in Brussels, managing EU grants 10 years ago. So it's just like, no, essentially nothing is wasted and you don't quite know what you want to do. Just have a wide view. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Always, always keep the view wide. And if something scares you a little bit, go for it. Uh, especially if you're like a grad, because you're at the point in life where there's no risk. Like chances are, if you're a grad, you probably don't have too many things tying you down. Like, uh, you know, just go out and explore, um, explore something exciting and, um, you know, varieties of spice of life, work for big companies, work for small companies. I always work for startups until uh, my current job, which is uh, one of the largest estate agents in the UK. Um, obviously, as an engineer, not, not as an estate agent. So, um, but before that, I'd never worked for a company with more than sort of 30 or 40 people. And uh, obviously, we got to know each other working at Third Eye. In fact, you have the distinguished honor of witnessing my last day as a recruiter, um, yes. where... <laughs> I uh, had a copious amount of uh, lager uh, to <laughs> to celebrate the fact I would never have to message anyone about a job again. Although Third Eye was a nice sort of place to offer uh, jobs out because it was quite interesting recruitment. I was recruiting uh, mainly computer vision uh, people, which was pretty cool. Um, so in, in terms of uh, if someone came to you and, and, and said, uh, I want to break into UX, like what would you say is the biggest challenge? Uh, in terms of breaking into UX specifically? We've talked a lot about code on the podcast previously, but not really touched much on UX. It's the it's the flip side of what I was just describing. So the, the thing that has made my career, especially in startups, so interesting and really work for me, which is getting to do a lot of different things, is also the big challenge of breaking into and getting into UX. And like, it's a... UX user experience if we just think about what UX is is UX by default isn't visual design and it but it brings together the whole touch points of what is happening but what really doesn't happen and it took me a really long time to figure out is you have a lot of companies recruiting for roles with a title that doesn't always match so you you might have a lot of companies recruiting for product designers, UX designers, service designers, UX UI designers, and or like any combination of digital designer, uh, web designer, a lot of these things that might or might not be user experience design, UX design. So one of the biggest challenges coming in is figuring out from a job description what that job could actually be. And is that what I want to do? And is that what my skills are? Or is that what my, oh, I want my skills to be? Um, so there's definitely a, a lot of like lottery and sifting through of like, okay, do they actually need a front end engineer or do they need a UX designer? Yeah, it's difficult, particularly with startups that they uh, can't decide or they need both. And that's a whole different ball game, really. Yeah, or they might need a product designer who is really strong in multiple areas, but 
um, is really strong in multiple areas, but then um, they're looking for a UX designer. And then when the expectations of an applicant and the company don't meet, it can be really challenging. Like I've applied for jobs as a UX designer where I, especially early in my career, I got told, I was like, well, your visual skills aren't strong enough. It's like, but you didn't even look for UI. You, you never specified UI, but what design is, is very difficult because like there's design is such a wide field and defining the type of design where you are and versus what the employers want. Because if you say designer, people get, you know, pretty screens and, um, you know, pretty screens and fun logos and um, that kind of like visual pizzazz. But because so much of UX work happens, like frankly, so much of UX works happens in a work, like in a written document, like Notion or Word or Google Docs, um, in a sketchbook before you even get to the point of having something visual to design. And same for product, or so much of it is research. And getting to that point where you're actually finding, finding that job description that matches what you want to do, regardless of the title. And that's the hard thing. Because if you're really set on applying for only UX jobs, like, I want to be a UX designer, you might end up interviewing for visual designer roles because the employers aren't listing them right. Or you might be missing out things that you'd be great at or you really like because they might be as a UX UI or they might be as a product designer or a service designer. There's a bit of a minefield. <laughs> it's, it's, I've noticed that. It's extremely... Because uh, I actually know someone who who's looking to break into UX at the moment, and um, the the just it feels like every single job is different. I think the difficulty is it's it's almost like they the job titles haven't been standardized to the point they like they have with software engineering. Like I know what a front end engineer is, a back end engineer, DevOps. Um, whereas it can mean different things to different people. I mean, DevOps is still kind of that way, actually, to be fair, where it means different things to different people. Like, I mean, in fact, a lot of listeners might not even be that familiar. What is the difference between UI UX uh, to, to you? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a very easy um, UX is the experience of how does it work? What are the steps that, like, if we take a really, really dumbed down versus what are the steps Let's say we're talking about specifically digital as well. We're not going to anywhere print or physical right now because that's where we get the service design. It's UX is a digital product of what does the product do? What is What does the user do? What is the user experience throughout that product? So if we're, for example, looking at, um, um, which would be a good example here. Uh, let's say uh, I'll take an example of a project that I did at my master's of, it was a dashboard um it was a dashboard for an ICU. So we were working at UCLH, uh, the University Hospital, and their ICU intensive care unit. And you had a dashboard that was showing real-time data that we were developing. It was showing real-time data of what is happening on the floor in each of the beds in the ICU and what is happening elsewhere in the hospital that has an impact on, um, impact on the ICU. And what you see in the end of that project is a visual uh, user interface. It has boxes, it colors, every icons, um, data numbers. So you have the interface. But before we get to that point comes first user research. What is the problem that we're solving? Or here's a problem. How does that problem manifest? Um, then you get to UX design. How do we solve those problems? What is the data that we need? How how could the flow go? What do we show on each screen? Like, so for example is, what is the most important thing to show on the biggest? What's the biggest data? What else do we show on this? What goes behind the next menu? Is there a menu? All of these things that happen 
regardless of what it looks like, that's the core of UX. And then UI, the user interface design, is when you take that data and or you take that system and apply a visual practice to it. And is UI is extremely important because you can ruin an experience with bad UI. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't save bad UX with good UI. Just because it's pretty, it doesn't mean it functions. And just because it functions doesn't mean it's pretty, but it's kind of, they absolutely go hand in hand. And UI is especially huge when it comes to accessibility, which is a huge thing, is accessibility and making things legible and actually work in a way that is usable first, accessible, accessible and usable first, and then beautiful and on brand and coherent across, especially if you have a bigger product family, how does it, what does it look like if you're on this app or you're on a website? Let's say you have a banking app and a banking website. Do they look the same? Do we use the same colors everywhere? Are all of our exit buttons the same color and same format? So UI is absolutely fascinating. I love doing UI as well, but that's the that's the how kind of go together. There, there's a lot of uh, a lot of interesting points you've made there, and I think the psychology behind it is fascinating. Personally, I think in another life, if I was much, if I had a better brain for designing stuff, I think I may well have ended up uh, doing that sort of thing. And the accessibility point is really interesting because um, for me, I don't know if you knew this about me. I'm colorblind, um, and so it's I knew really because I tested a lot of my prototypes with you oh yeah colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember I was your guinea pig at Third Eye. Yeah, and it, it's one of I'm those sorry. things where that's all right because I do a lot of front end work um, at the moment, and it's something that we really have to consider. Not just that, but of course stuff like screen readers, uh, which are really important. A lot of people rely on them, um, but even just something similar, uh, simple as using red green and that sort of thing can be uh, can, can be a nightmare. Uh, so it's uh, the colorblind population. Uh, we, we appreciate the work you do. <laughs> <laughs> There is a there's a huge thing and also like technology is a huge, huge driver for accessibility. And the thing is the the amount of people, the amount of users of any app, you don't have to be an app for a specific group of people. If you're doing real estate, if you're doing fertility, if you're doing anything, you get a lot of accessibility, not just people who might have uh, physical impairments like hearing loss or vision loss, but also people who might have a different language as their first language. If you work, if you're make, if you're working in commercial space, and you have a user who has English as the third language, the copy that you start putting in there becomes even more important, and that's part of accessibility. It's like, like there's physical and there's a whole accessibility of how can people who are actually using this use it, and so much, so many times, so many times, accessibility comes at the end. It's like, oh hey, let's make sure that this is accessible. Like, let's make it work for colorblind people and let's put the alt text but accessibility in my opinion should be part of everything you do from the get-go because you increasing accessibility of any product will make it better for everyone not just for people with access needs making accessible products makes better products for everyone because you just have to think about every step (laughs) Yeah, because it's not it's not even just that people might think that we're on some kind of moral crusade here, uh, sort of talking about it. But it's it, it's not the case because uh, if you're excluding your customers via not making your stuff accessible, you're losing profit. So it's not it's not just a thing like it's not just a bleeding heart thing. It's like yeah, if you want to make more money, it's it pays to make it accessible. Um, so it, it's yeah, it's really important and um, just just little things. I mean, uh, I mean, this might be a bad example. Uh, 
if I'm uh, maybe it'd be better if you gave the example here, but if you switched around the confirm and cancel button, my absolute bugbear is when people do that, um, especially when you're trying to unsubscribe from some kind of service. I can't deal with it. <laughs> Hello, uh, dark patterns. Dark patterns, interesting. Is that like we call it anti patterns in code? So, like you're doing something the way it shouldn't be done. Is that the equivalent in UI UX then? Yeah, so dark patterns are uh, patterns that are actively doing something that isn't good. Um, a great, a great, a great dark pattern is um, you know hidden hidden exit buttons or swapping them around. Amazon's um, Amazon is notorious for this because if you're trying to cancel Amazon pre- Premium, <laughs> the amount of steps that you need to go through that, all of these things that are probably great for like they're dark because they're patterns that are used to increase profit engagement numbers numerics you know reduce number of subscriptions but you do it in a bit of a nefarious way <laughs> mm. i was trying to unsubscribe from service the other day and it got up to the i won't say what the service is in case they decide to reach out and sponsor uh, and also they're a small business i don't want to bad sorry i just went on amazon uh, you're welcome no, oh, well, i'm sure bezos will be upset uh, <laughs> um but uh if you're listening jeff please do sponsor us um but uh i was trying to unsubscribe from a subscription service the other day like i said i won't name what it is um but i went through the process they did the standard oh we'll, we'll give you another month three and then at the end they uh instead of being able to cancel online, they put up a little picture of a quite sad looking employee. And it's like, oh, just call call this guy. And they said his name. We're a small company. We'd love to hear how, how, how we can do better. That's how you unsubscribe. So I have to, this really nice looking bloke, I have to call him up and just be like, look, sorry, I'm going <laughs> to have to cancel your subscription. And it's genuinely guilted me out of doing it. <laughs> I mean, oh. I really like the product. It's just, it's just, it's like 30 quid a month. Um, so I want, I actually, and they don't even offer a, um, a way to like stretch it out. So it's every three months. So, uh, yeah, anyway, um, people are going to work out who it is, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 that just really annoyed me and I wanted to tell someone, <laughs> <laughs> you all oh, tell me all of these things that annoy you because they absolutely annoy me. And yeah, my friends and my partner, uh, get these examples from me. Like the, the first example that you said around switch and cancel and confirm buttons is yes, there's a dark pattern, but also anything that kind of breaks an existing mental model in a very small way like if you if you change the place of where that button is because because internet and web and app designs they're new in a sense but we are they're also something that we use a lot so when you do something that breaks an existing mental model i.e the idea that if you if you imagine how if you imagine a fire truck in your mind right now um that's a mental model that you have based on existing knowledge and experience of a fire truck. If someone makes fire trucks green, we stop associating them with what we know them. If you make, you know, if you make cancel buttons green, we get it's kind of a jarring thing. And that's the, that's the, you know, you have to like, you know, for, um, editing a movie. If it's done well, you don't really notice it, which is a good thing because it's just a smooth thing. But if we start breaking mental models or we don't take those into account, it's like all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's that jarring. You don't even always know how to describe it or what to call it. You just hear, you just know that something's a bit off. Mm, yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting and it's it's crazy how ingrained it is into our brains. And I, I do find that that whole side of things really interesting. Um, it's funny so- speeches <laughs> as well. Like you get to like like you can get to a point where nothing happens in code but like small UI or like small change in the UX and your customer feedback starts being like, oh, the app is so much faster. 
nothing has happened in the code, the performance is the same, but the experience feels faster. So you get huge benefits from small tweaks. Like that is that is very interesting because obviously I spend um, because of like the code of career, it's it's just all me. I'm 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 actually really bashed my head against all well the UX of the uh, website at the moment and. Um, I've been really bothered about getting the speed up to like first content for paint and all that sort of thing. I haven't even like, I'm now thinking about the UX, um, but actually I could make it appear so much faster, uh, by just having a smoother UX. So I'm, I'm definitely going to have a read up on that. There's a, there's a great example from now I'm going to be really bad because I do not have the reference at the top of my mind. If you have show notes, we can add them there, but there's this study I remember, um, essentially looking at it was a quite classic one quite well known it was looking at um people's experiences of a website where they could book flights and they were they were doing experiments so a lot of ux and more specifically human computer interactions so the field of study that touches ux and um, psychology and computer science love child a lot of it's based on experiments and you figure out things like what you know keyboards how do keyboard works that's an that's an hci thing that works in experiments so there was an experiment on um on that loading screen so you put in your search terms and you hit search and it takes a while um it takes a while to search so they were doing an experiment on with different types of screens of what you show the user at that point. And what I remember the best is that, first of all, if it's too fast, people don't trust your results always, unless you're Google. <laughs> Things that happen really quickly are a bit like, oh, but did it happen? Did it happen? Like there is a point in which our minds as humans start jarring because things are too fast. And the other point was when it was just a loading screen, like just a generic loading screen, versus when it was a screen that showed what was being searched even if it was a random list of like oh checking x doing this looking at you know looking at helsinki oh checking the weather in somewhere else the exact same amount of time people reported the one with something content was faster that's really interesting so i guess because i guess the, the brain is working on uh not translating working on understanding what message is being conveyed whereas if it's just a simple spinning wheel it's like oh i'm just staring at this it's, it's exactly. like being given a distraction. Exactly. And it's like, oh, the machine is doing this. I understand this takes time because the machine is doing this. And the examples that you have on the screen make sense. It's like, oh, I know what that means. Like, I know what weather means. Oh, that was actually really fast rather than it's just a computer. It's just a blank screen. This is my favorite UX problem in AI. Complete sidestep, sorry. But this is, a, this is my favorite problem with AI and usability and like UX in general because... AI is still, for the majority of us, is something either that we don't realize is AI, you know, chatbots, Siri, like we don't quite realize them, or it's something that we think is very sci-fi. So a lot of the AI applications, when you actually get to lay users, if you get to people every day, actually understanding and helping people figure out how the machine makes the decision, is this exactly thing, like how does the search engine find the flights for you? What do you see that helps you make sense of the machine? Especially because like a lot of the time, machine learning engineers can't tell that yourself or it becomes a really long academic article and you just kind of need to figure out what is the model? How do we represent this to you as a user so that you can trust the machine, but also you can you know when the machine is wrong because you know no system is perfect. <laughs> 
every model will always make a make a mistake. Um, and any and system's is, only as good as the data you feed into it as well. Exactly. So as a user, you need to understand what that is. And this is a this is very good UX. This is my favorite UX. Uh, like now I'm now I'm helping me people make sense about the ovulation. Also a very fun UX problem. <laughs> but that's the that's the kind of yeah future problems of AI, sense making of what is happening and why does the machine do that. And existing mental models around apps and everything we use daily, daily, we all have an idea of what happens, whether it's depending, like it all depends on when you use and what you use, but like when you send an email, what do you imagine happens after that? You might not know, but you have some kind of idea and then it goes back and forth. I would love to do uh, like a pop box kind of thing of going around uh, maybe London or somewhere and just asking people, what do you think happens when the email uh, gets sent? <laughs> Just some of the wacky stuff people come up with. <laughs> oh, can we please do that? Let's make it like an egg. let's make it a Christmas special of this podcast. I was thinking for the YouTube channel of this actually, I might do some like pop box stuff. I don't. I, I need to get a proper microphone and a decent camera, but um, yeah, it'd be quite funny because uh, there's a lot of the big uh, tech YouTubers have been doing. Uh, like there's a guy uh, Nick White um, on YouTube who's uh, who's very good, and he's been doing things where uh, he he goes around New York and offers people a hundred dollars if they can solve a programming question uh, on the spot and that kind of thing, um, which is pretty cool. Oh, that's fun. <laughs> and yeah, and at the end of the day, it's like it's all UX because oh, now I just disheartened because I want to go and ask that question. Anyway, it's all UX, it's all user experience because you're un- you're understanding. Mental models are important because what you're doing when you are doing user experience design is you're understanding what the problem is. And hopefully you have a great researcher with you. UX research, ah, amazing. Like you want the research. Nothing in UX happens without research. Um, And then you're understanding, okay, well, how is that problem solved now? And how do people see that problem? How do people understand this thing now? So that then you can, you know, start going on those solutions. Like, okay, this is the situation now. This is what people do now. This is where we fit in. And you have to fit in because you could have the best tech ever, but if people don't see the way it fits into their problem or they can't imagine it or it doesn't fit into any mental model of any technology existing, it's a bit, it's a big ask. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I, my, my kind of question as well uh, on this whole, I mean, the wider um, a bit of this whole thing is um, a lot of the people that listen to us are people that are either in uni or even leaving school. Um, they're keen to get into tech, not necessarily even to code. In fact, the coder career is actually somewhat of a misnomer because uh, we always have tech recruiters on here. We have entrepreneurs um, and now, of course, designers. Uh, so how, what would you say if someone was specifically interested in UI, UX? Um, the path is actually even less clear than being a software developer, from what I can see. If, if someone... Let's say, for the sake of argument, an 18-year-old who just left sick form uh, came up to you and, and, and said, uh, I, I want to get into the industry. How would you say they should go about it? I'm also a really bad example because my career is such a windy <laughs> Um If you want to take the academic route, study psychology or study design, depending on what, like, depending on which science of, like, the UX and product design world you're the most interested in, um, or, you know, human-computer interaction, Absolutely. If you want that academic rigor, if you want that research practice, if you want that that grounding in academia, it's not like I did. A, I have an MSc in human computer interaction. I did do an entire design module, but most of it was research and understanding and that rigor. So it's very academic. Um, do uh, boot camps 
this all comes with the caveat that any nothing that you study will not help you as much as when you're actually working. Um, you you will learn so much like any techie world is you get the basics and you get the kind of frameworks then you actually learn when you get into into the job um so that's why almost like boot camps like boot camps can get you to a job but you can't like whether it's uni whether it's um boot camp whether it's masters you can't get it all and then the other the other way just like with coding as far as i understand not as a not as a coder um is doing what you want to do um you know, finding, because what you need to get a job in UX or design, you need a portfolio. You need case studies, If whether it's, you know, volunteer for an NGO, if you have the time, um, uh, do case studies, start learning things, take courses online on your own time. Um, I recommend things that don't cost you any money or very little money. Do not do unpaid internships. We want to get rid of unpaid internships Absolutely. in the world. Absolutely. Because unpaid internships you don't need them you and they're also like just permeating really bad toxic practices of who can afford to do them yeah i'm working class i, I can't afford that <laughs> sorry swore. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right we got the sense of bleep <laughs> <laughs> cool uh i get very passionate about unpaid internships mm. well it's understandable yeah it's like the biggest thing is what you want to do is two things find a way for you to practice those skills whether it's in academia and research understanding that like background or whether it's in a boot camp or in a design kind of related uh, study program or whether it's on your own just do what you want to do like you this is almost it's not quite fake until you make it but design all elements of design in my opinion and my uh, undergraduate dissertation is a craft if you want to learn to whittle a whistle from wood you need to practice start from basics really really good thing that a lot of my i have a great slack community um a lot of people recommend always copy existing interfaces copy apps understand how the flows work break them down and do them yourself figma you can do a lot with figma for free adobe xd free again get a software start playing around start doing what you're doing and building that case studies and then when you have something you've been trialing find mentors online you know figma uh friends for figma designer hangouts a huge amount of slack communities twitter design twitter uh find mentors find anyone who will take time with you to do feedback do crits understand you know help you through that bit design is great for mentors i have had excellent mentors who are all still my friends um after years but like just helping with that like i'm quite new and i know the theory or like i've done this bit before but everything else is new yeah and um, for, for those uh, for those areas to find mentors, we'll we'll leave those in the description. People are interested. Uh, are there any free resources uh, to learn UX in particular that you'd recommend? So there's a lot. There's a lot of resources. A lot of free ones. Um, and I would always go for things like Nielsen Norman, um, Jared Spool, um, anyone that is in that kind of uh, UIE is Jared Spool's group there's a few reputable sources if you start searching those and start seeing what they're talking about you can then also start weeding out what's actually worth reading yeah that uh that that sounds good and uh, my final my final question for you is uh what i i guess kind of relates to what i've asked already in that respect but what would you advise your younger self um about your career like when you were very sort of junior um knowing what you know now what what sort of things would you would you advise Ooh. So one of the things I already said that I find really, uh, really big is that every skill needs a practice. 
um, you okay only get better by doing that thing. Um, and I have done that exact practice of copying interfaces, figuring out how to do these things and just copy what someone else did. Um, what I know now that I didn't know back at the time is how good feedback is. I used to be absolutely terrified of feedback. Um, like this was in my early job as well, like a good eight, 10 years ago. Um, like whenever someone was having feedback to me, I thought on like I it was it was soul crushing. It was absolutely soul crushing. I remember whenever my first manager, uh, Viviana in Brussels, when she caught when we had a one to one with her, I would go in full of dread because I was sure that I'm going to get fired. I was terrified. I was constantly going to be fired. <laughs> so terrifying. And then I went to Goldsmiths. I went to art school. I cannot draw, especially hands. And um, so I'm a designer who can't draw. You're well, very welcome. Um, I do illustrate some, but anyway, um, I, the feedback was so excruciating because I had poured my heart and soul out to it. And I was like, I spent so much time, I spent so much time getting that thing right. And it's like, this is the point where I'm going to get feedback. And what I wish I'd learned earlier, and I now do all the time is share all the time, ask for feedback all the time, the earlier, the better, have 10 ideas talk them through with someone have a first sketch on your notebook talk that through with someone the way the way that you open that process get make sure that you don't get to a point where you think something is perfect and you're so attached to it because you spend so long with it alone that when someone actually comes with good feedback and be like oh actually or something that you miss because we all miss something we all always miss something that we were doing on our own because you just can't keep everything in your mind. Um, so feedback is useful in giving you those things that you forgot. But also you can't, if you have, if you ask for feedback early and often, and just practice that, just practice living with feedback, ask, practice asking it, it means that by the time you get to the point where you're used to ask feedback, you actually have a much more polished, much better product, and you've got rid of that dread. Like, I just, I, I have like these really messy Figma files with full of sketches <laughs> and I take my boss, uh, my manager, George, uh, our CPO, um, who, who I work with really closely. I just like, okay, George, this is everything I've been thinking about today. I tried this one. It didn't work. I tried this one. It didn't work. This is not really there. It looks quite ugly, but how about this flow? And it's just like, it's just not attached to it. So there's no dread. And my very final piece of advice that I would give myself is do not compare timelines personal professional I went to university at 24 I went to Goldsmiths full of highly talented amazing people like people who are now winning awards and are like on tv and like doing excellent work so many of my work especially in media and communications I have animators illustrators filmmakers people who have amazing careers now and people, these people have amazing careers at the point in which I went to uni. Being 24 with 18, 20-year-olds who were so much further away than I was, it was horrible. I just kept comparing. It's like, I am so late. I am so late. I can't do this. And that was actually not true. I wasted way too much time comparing timelines and feeling like I'm starting too late. I'm not 30. I'm a senior UX designer. I'm in the actual dream job. Don't worry, my previous boss knows it as well. Hi, Raf. Um, and my current manager knows it. This is my dream job. I'm doing exactly what I want to do. And I'm not. A, and if anything had happened earlier, I wouldn't have been in a position to take this job. Like, 
it's all aligned in the end and I am I'm exactly where I need to be not too soon not too late it's it's fine it's fine <laughs> nice yeah well I, I always worry uh, worry about because obviously I didn't um, start I didn't get into software engineering full-time until I was 24 which um you know if it, it felt really old at times like really in the grand scheme of things it wasn't even 25 yet and it's like you i comparison is just a thief of joy like i let that really bother me for so long and now i i, I just don't care like uh colonel sanders didn't open his first kfc until he was in his 60s like if if the colonel can do that then uh you know i <laughs> i think i'll live with uh not not writing javascript until my 22nd birthday you know um so it, it it's it's fine and i think that's great advice and definitely pe- people um people listening just compare to yourself to where you were yesterday and uh another nice saying i like is uh the best t- uh, the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago the second best time is now Absolutely. And and everything that you do in between, especially somewhere like UX, which is so user and human and cross disciplinary field is everything that you do in between helps. Like if you end up in UX, whatever you did before, there's very few things that do not help you. <laughs> like I, I've done so many things. I had my first, the first time I actually got paid as a UX designer despite, you know, doing things like design and things at uni and working in tech, but when I actually got paid salary as a UX designer full time, I was 26 or 27, um, but it didn't mean that that was my day one. It didn't mean that that was the first time I learned anything. I learned and done so many different things that worked in my favor and I still use all the time now. And like just because that was when the title started doesn't mean that that's when it work started. Yeah, definitely, definitely couldn't couldn't agree more. Uh, and uh, yeah, I feel the same way. Like I I started writing code before way before I uh, uh, got my first job, and you already learned so many lessons through that. So um, and you were I, a tech recruiter, like yeah, <laughs> like there's so much that you do before that helps you, and you're like all of a sudden I'm such a late. I, I knew all the buzzwords. Yes. <laughs> I knew Java and JavaScript wasn't the same thing, which is uh, shockingly more than could be said for a lot of recruiters. Uh, anyway, before I badmouth too many, too many tech recruiters, <laughs> sorry, I get messages these days that just would have annoyed me to no end. When, well, they annoy me to no end now, but they annoy they um, they would have annoyed me to no end if uh, one of my colleagues has sent it out as a tech recruiter. Uh, where people... Technically, <laughs> I know how I know HTML, CSS, and a little bit of uh, like jQuery. But nothing bugs me like a job ad looking for a UX designer who can code. Oh. Those are two jobs, pay for two yeah. people. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I, I always love that tweet where the guy said, oh, you're looking for uh, JavaScript, uh, Java, Python, Docker, Kubernetes. Uh, you're not recruiting a developer, you're recruiting an IT department. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, pe- people love to, uh, you know, the jack of all trades, master, and, uh, master of none and all that. But um, yeah, so... Understanding what happens helps you design actually things that can be can be built, but you don't need to know that yourself. You need to work closely with your engineers. Absolutely. Have an engineer, work closely with them, go through whatever it is. It's like, can, okay, my favorite thing to ask anyone, every engineer that I work with is how much do you hate me if we do this? Because <laughs> there's a possible and there is, this is really difficult to do and this is what makes sense for us to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's something where I, I, I've learned that working with a great designer is just the best way to be a good developer because it's, it makes life so much easier when, once we know um, what what's going on. And uh, yeah, it, it's pretty great. So um, there's a whole other podcast that I could talk about just like working <laughs> with engineers. 
working with engineers the best go and do it <laughs> absolutely um in, in terms of uh in terms of what you're working on at the moment have you got anything to shout out like uh any vacancies at the, at the startup you're at or anything like that we don't have vacancies yet at this stage so i work at uh, bay of fertility what we're doing is we are bringing to the market a at-home fertility treatment so we're bringing a um old-fashioned clinical treatment and bringing it into the 21st century kicking and screaming it's called <laughs> cervical calf insemination but what it means is that from about mid next year you will be able to buy a fertility treatment delivered to your home do a full cycle of treatment uh that costs much much less than going to the clinic so we're, we're trying to revolutionize fertility uh, make it accessible and more affordable and what, so what we're working is uh, the things that I things that I like to do. I've, I'm working across a lot of things around from uh, regulatory user research, so doing things like human factors and actually simulated studies with hardware and clinical studies to make sure that we are approved as a medical device. And on the other hand, what I'm doing is uh, a lot of physical design with other physical designers, so packaging and you know packaging and hardware design and creating a the end of it, the biggest, uh, the biggest thing that's actually UX. I'm, I'm picking experience very widely here, as you can see, Cam. <laughs> um, but we're creating a digital, essentially a digital fertility clinic. What we're trying to figure out, um, I work really closely <laughs> with an excellent CTO, George Thomas. Um, what we're trying to, what we're trying to figure out is how can we support the people for whom our treatment won't be the best. How can we support people before they need treatment? How can we support people while they're going through treatment and figure out and navigate the options and the timelines and the, the clinics and the doctors and the options and the healthcare and the whole field? Yeah, so that's what we're doing at Bea. Um, if you if you search Bea B E A uh, fertility, there was just a great article about us on Wired. Uh, Wired oh, UK exciting! A few a few weeks ago, so you can read all about what we're about to do, and it is exciting. It is thrilling. It is hard work. We're a small team, but the the use the resource that I do, the people that I get to speak to, is just incredible. So many people that we get to figure out how we can help their journeys and you know next year we're going to be making bayer babies we're actually <laughs> i love that tagline as well <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's really awesome yeah I, I can't think of many more rewarding kind of things you could you could do uh, as a business than helping people ha um, have kids that desperately want them it is incredible and um, and also so as a team and as a company we want to be evidence-based like i have a i have a master's in science and our founder, David, is one of our co-founders, uh, the creator of the device. He's a clinical embryologist. I work with uh, doctors and embryologists and people who know science. It's like, we're, we're not going to do anything that isn't actually supported by, by you know, peer-reviewed evidence. And being able to bring those, bring that research, bring those resources into people's hands in a way that doesn't, doesn't involve clinics or invasive procedures or anyone else you can just try to take charge of that by yourself and do something because there there isn't anything if you're trying at home and you need treatment there is no steps in between it's straight to tests there there's so little you can do so we're trying to bridge that gap
Yeah, that sounds like that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, sounds really cool. And all the links to that will be in the description as well. Uh, but but yeah, I think, um, yeah, th- th- this will have given people a really sort of clear view um, of, of you, uh, UI UX. And what, what's the best way for people to get in touch uh, with you if they've got any questions about um, careers? Because I'm sure people will be very interested. I really hope it's been clear. I feel like I've been <laughs> waffling for an hour. It's been no, crazy. no, it's been really good. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can tell I'm very passionate about what I do. Uh, the best ways to get in touch with me is, well, LinkedIn. Um, my name is in the, it's hard to spell, but it's in the podcast episode, I hope. It will um, be, yeah. <laughs> and also Twitter. So um, on, on Twitter, I'm Tialina, so T-I-I-A-L-I-I-N-A. That comes from my middle name, but Tialina in, um, it's two eyes, two eyes. On Twitter is another way of getting in touch, getting in touch with me. I do love chatting the career with people i'm passionate about the field i'm passionate about my company that i work for now and yeah it's great cool good <laughs> stuff well i'm i'm sure um i'm sure plenty of people are, uh, will be interested in getting in touch and it's been a really exciting conversation about um ui ux and i've learned a lot myself um as well because obviously it's not it's not my area so um really interesting to hear about it and uh, awesome to get your insights so thank you again for coming on yeah and thank you Cam. this is my first ever podcast well, you've done great. Thank, thank you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that, I've done radio before, but yeah, this is my first ever podcast. I'm very happy about this. <laughs> cool. Um, well, thanks again. And uh, thank you, listener, for checking out another episode of The Code of Career. We're here with you each Monday. Please, uh, if you want to support the podcast, check out some of the affiliate links we have in the description. I won't endorse anything unless I personally have used the service myself or I otherwise rate it. Uh, so do check that out. I think currently we're working zero to mastery. So do check that out. But until then, see you next time and have a great week. Bye.